Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. Sarah Hall is the author of Burnt Coat, a novel. Sarah was born in 1974 in Cumbria, England, and received a master's in letters in creative writing from Scotland's St. Andrews University and has published four novels. Haas Water won the Commonwealth Writers' Prize as the overall winner and best first novel, and a Society of Authors Betty Trask Award. The Electric Michelangelo was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, the Commonwealth Writers' Prize, Eurasia Region, and the Prix Femina Etranger, and was longlisted for the Orange Prize for Fiction. Daughters of the North won the 2006-07 John Llewellyn Reese Prize and the James Tripty Jr. Award, and was shortlisted for the Arthur C. Clarke Award for Science Fiction. How to Paint a Dead Man was longlisted for the Man Booker Prize and won the Portico Prize for Fiction. In 2013, Sarah was named one of Granta's Best Young British Novelists, a prize awarded every 10 years, and she won the BBC National Short Story Award and the E.M. Forster Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Burnt Coat. Thank you for having me. Would you mind telling listeners a little bit about what your book is about? 
Yeah, so it was a response to the pandemic, but it is not a pandemic book. I wouldn't categorize it that way. But the main character is a sculptor. Her name is Edith. She has reached the end of her life and she's looking back over it and recalling the incidents and the relationships that were very important and that formed her both as a person and as an artist. And one of the main incidents is a pandemic. So we do have a bit of that in it. I feel like I need to put a disclaimer up (laughs) for those not yet willing to, you know, undertake some lockdown fiction. But it's really about how you become resilient through very difficult and trying circumstances, through trauma, the things that make you stronger, that, you know, the kind of wisdoms that you might achieve along the way, if they're even possible. And for me as a writer, it was just a way, I think, of responding to and reconciling myself with this very strange thing that we were all going through nothing like it has happened in my lifetime really and I just wanted to tackle it and, and I assumed the readers were wanting to to tackle it somehow so yeah it's a, it's a strange book <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say strange I found it very powerful and I haven't stopped thinking about the one scene where Edith's mom what is her name again I'm sorry this is my biggest Naomi yeah Naomi of course right of course because she has to teach her how to say it so when Naomi ends up having her what's the medical word aneurysm or what was Mm -hmm. the yeah the aneurysm that's right how she just got more and more tired over the course of that day and how she sat down saying she has this terrible headache because of course I'm like a total hypochondriac and I'm like how would I know if I had that (laughs) yeah and how she's sitting there and holding her head and then it just so quickly you know devolves into what it becomes and that and the surgery they have to do to save her and the implications of what it means to be the child of someone whose identity is somehow really not lost as somebody tells her in the book but so changed and how her loyalty persisted nonetheless right she still wants to tie her you know what hitch her ride to that whatever that expression is she doesn't want to leave her mother even yeah. if she's not the mother that she had grown up with exactly it's a very strange kind of primal thing isn't it and I suppose being a mother myself that that's one of the main anxieties isn't it that you're going to go down with something you'll be completely incapacitated how will I look after my child or children how will how will we kind of survive those circumstances if, if they happen to me if they happen to us and I am a single parent so you know those anxieties are writ quite large in life for me and I think I wanted to really test them to a kind of an extreme boundary in the in the novel uh, so things yeah that they're really pushed to the kind of furthest ramifications of what it might mean to be in a partnership as a, a mother and a daughter here but as a child and a parent and the idea that the relationship is two-way traffic you know I like this idea about parenting anyway that it's not all top down yes of course we're here to look after our children and to teach them and ensure their safety and their upbringing is okay but also we learn a lot from from them and in some ways they help us too so and that of course is is the nature of Edith and Naomi's relationship fundamentally they they're codependent I wouldn't say in a bad way at all I would say in just a survivalist way basically so true especially when you showed them sort of similar life stages like when they were reading at the same level and they were kind of going through it together because of Naomi's impaired cognition after mm-hmm. her surgery and one of the lines that really stuck with me most was how, you know, Edith wanted to stay by her side because she still smelled the same. Yeah, exactly. And that's just like, oh my gosh, it like brought tears to my eyes because, you know, we could go through so much and yet 
fundamentally you're the same person, right? You still feel and yeah. touch and smell the same. And what does it mean to really be there for your kids and not be there? I don't right, know. Right, exactly. And identity is a very strange thing, isn't it? Because it's mutable, so it will change across the course of a lifetime. And there are certain things which might accelerate a very difficult and traumatic change, like illness or like an accident. And it's at those moments when I suppose love is really tested. And of course, you know, the love that children have for family members is it, it's sort of hardwired, really, in some ways. There's not much that you could do to alter it. So I like that idea, too, that you know, even though Naomi might not recognize herself as a mother anymore for a certain period of time, and she might not have all the responses and the emotional register that she previously had, there is still something down there in her too that is activated at certain moments when she needs to defend her daughter or keep the two of them together. Yeah, and I I suppose I like the idea that there is something very unshakable uh, and indestructible about the two of them. And of course, Edith, in her artistic career, she's, she's exploring this idea of destruction and resilience anyway because of the nature of the technique she uses which is this burnt wood burning the surface of wood to make it waterproof more resilient and there is something about her whole life that where she's trying to find the kind of key to her operating keys I suppose and that's one of them the idea that you know you are damaged in some ways but that's not necessarily a layer that leaves you a victim or less strong it's something that might actually finally you know build build you up a level make you make you make you harder in a good way and then I was sort of annoyed maybe annoyed's the wrong word but I was really upset with the dad for abandoning the whole situation and for getting almost irritated himself. I mean, I understand, I mean, I can't, but I shouldn't say I understand how he feels. I haven't been in the situation, but you put us in the situation very effectively. So (laughs) you could see why it was so hard for him, right? With his wife becoming a completely different person. Essentially he has two dependents all of a sudden. And, you know, you, you really capture that in the one moment where he was He's like, you are not, you know, what are you doing? Like, you're not who I married. This is, you're not the same woman. Mm. And yet he shouldn't have left. No, <laughs> no, I agree. And uh, and that's that terrible thing that, you know, I've witnessed it quite a few times now. The fact that women seem able to accommodate these changes in a partner and, and, and care for them. And perhaps society's brought us up a little bit more that way where I I don't know that we're naturally gifted with more empathy but I certainly think everything is stacked towards women caring for men especially if they go through difficult circumstances so I've always been fascinated with the equation when it's the other way around I did write a short story called Mrs Fox where a man's wife turns into a fox and he loves her nevertheless (laughs) it felt almost subversive writing that story you know the fact that he sticks with her and as her carer and everything else but in this in this novel certainly Edith is put into the position where she has to be a carer and it's very uncomfortable for her and there is there is this kind of presiding notion of of abandonment and the absent father and weirdly you know the second person lots of it's written in the second person so this address to you which begins as Edith addressing her her lover Hallett and remembering the times they were together but the you address switches to something else in the end it's her relationship with mortality and death and having to reconcile herself with the fact that that's always been in her life because not only did her mother survive this terrible aneurysm, she was left with another weakened blood vessel, which at any point might go. So to live with the shadow of death is a very big thing for Edith. And it's something that she negotiates her whole life. And of course we all do to various degrees and it's it comes forward sometimes and it retreats at other times. But really she's parented by her mother and death. That's the premise of the novel. 
Wow. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also really cheery and full of sex. So, you know, it's it's not such a grim read. (laughs) So what is it like when you're writing this? And you said you're, you know, you have a daughter, you're a single mom, you're working on this during the pandemic. How do you, did it help you to write this? Did it make you, like, did you turn off your computer? I'm assuming you're on a computer, but like, could you get up from your chair and feel, would you feel lighter and better or would it bring you down? What was the experience like? It felt good to be writing something for a number of different reasons. I think I was feeling very productive at a time when we were all being halted and that was a real push. You know, I was getting up at 5am to do it because I had to homeschool my daughter afterwards. So there was something quite belligerent in me that activated, but also I keep talking about my upbringing, which was in the rural North uh, at a time when kind of catastrophes would happen. We'd be snowed in quite often, things like that. And there was that feeling sometimes that, oh, a big thing's happening. What are we going to do? Everybody get to work, pick up a shovel, you know? And I, I felt like that switched on in me again the first day of the lockdown here in the UK in March 2020. Just that trigger of, right, you've got to do something. There's not much you can do. Like, you're not an emergency worker. You can't go out there. And so that's what I did. But I was... I, And it's funny that you say working on a computer because I was actually writing in these little exercise books. See, I I exercise books. No, but ordinarily I would have been working on a computer, but I kind of squirreled myself away into the smallest room in the house. People have likened giving birth at home to this. You know, you go and find the smallest safe space and there you are going through this tremendously, you know, what's the word? Effortful (laughs) thing. So that's how it happened initially. And, And I don't know what it was. It was a... I don't know, it was almost like a childlike response. Why was I writing in an exercise book? I type things up straight away to a laptop. That's how I work. Anyway, so I found myself in this strange position. And perhaps it was about comforting myself as well, trying to find a way through, trying to find like a companionship with the reader or who I imagined the reader might be, which is quite hard to imagine in the early stages of writing. But there's there's always the sense of, okay, no, this is this is us, here we are. You know, even if there's a set of characters and there's me writing, it's it's here we are. What are we, what are we asking at this point? You know, we might not get any answers, but what are we asking? Are we going to be okay? What's this, what's this pandemic going to mean for us? What's this illness going to mean if, if it's contracted? You know, because at that point there were no vaccines. We didn't know the financial implications really. Things were not set up to accommodate what was going on. So there was a lot of uncertainty and fear. And I think, strangely, those may be circumstances under which I can work, but also they certainly were really deep-rooted anxieties and questions that were making me want to write and ask them in a book. And the book, I think, is asking those questions. It's, you know, what use am I? What use is art in this in this difficult time? How do we see around the edges of this? So the pandemic in the novel is not the pandemic that we were going through. Mine was imagined very differently and perhaps amplifies some of the aspects in order to really inquire, you know, how we respond to those things. But I don't know. I mean, maybe it was just a coping mechanism. Very simple. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, it's pretty awesome to have it be a whole novel. I mean, a lot of people just, you know, baked banana bread and like, here you go, you know. You have well. a very moving. I know you said it was. What did you say? Weird or something? But you know, th- although parts of it were dark, it's 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 hopeful in a way, really, right? It's inspiring the bonds of love on and relationships, and you yeah, know that we can I get through so. anything, which is true, right? The time passed. Here we all are. Yeah. Whatever comes next, but no, that's right. That's right. And I, 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 you know, I enjoy writing. I wouldn't really categorize them as strong women. I would just see lots of my female characters as, as capable and, and and working and doing the things that women do. But I like that Edith was a successful artist and she was working in an area where there was a kind of national obligation. So she's a sculptor and in the novel, she's been charged with creating this memorial to the dead in the pandemic, which is a really big deal. And, you know, we're in times when we're really thinking about memorials and how we reflect these big events and, and what art can do to help commemorate if not console so yeah she's she, she, she's a pretty tough character but on the one hand she's very vulnerable as well so I think in some ways she was just it's just an every woman if such a thing exists and how did you begin writing like how did you know this is something that you love to do I think it's always just been a way for me to express myself in the best way that I can so I've become more verbally able over the years <laughs> But that's that's not where I feel like my strengths lie. You know, I think when I have a pen in my hand or I'm clicking away, then something happens. And I suppose it's like, I've always likened it to music. I feel more like a composer in some way or a maker because the language is very important. The sound of the words is very important. It, it's possibly having started out as a poet. There's a sense of essence that I'm trying to get at with which words are being used as well as, you know, the uh, operating keys of fiction where you're thinking about the movement of the story and characters and everything else, world building. There is just something about laying down words that feels bigger somehow and and like a like an expression that I could find nowhere else. So it was always quite natural in some ways. And then I think it was just degrees of it being formalised, a bit of recognition, just enjoying doing it, honing my craft, spending that time studying works and also working with an editor and eventually you get where you get to as a writer hopefully I'm still changing and improving I would like to think and this book did come out of nowhere but I suspect there are things in it that have been waiting for quite a long time in me so it was a response to a particular set of circumstances but also there are proclivities in this book which I've had for a long time and 
this might in some way be a kind of crowning of those aspects that I've always been working towards, you know, the thinking about a disruption of identity, thinking about landscape, thinking about, you know, political power, all those things, feminism, they all kind of come together in this book, art, sexuality, sensuality, the one thing I've always been interested in is a kind of sensuality on the page and a sensuality in the world. Yeah, so I, I don't know. It's a short novel. It's it's of its time, but there's something about it, I think. It's just been waiting in the wings for 20 years, <laughs> especially that first line. It arrived and it, it was it arrived on, on the day almost, but, you know, the, the idea of those who tell stories survive. As a, as a first sentence, it sort of set up the whole novel, and I think that's something that has been being constructed in me for quite some time. Interesting. There is something to that sort of forever legacy of leaving behind your your words on the page in a way that nothing else, no photograph, no nothing, no memory can encapsulate. So Right. And the act of storytelling and how important it is for humans, I think. Why do we do it? You know, why is it important? What does it give us? I think about this stuff a lot too. <laughs> spend too much time thinking about storytelling <laughs> so when you're what types of books do you like to read and do you like to read while you're writing or do you kind of put it on hold I do I put it on hold to a degree so just this novel for example and perhaps it was the state of the nation the state of the globe I was reading a lot of poetry and that might have been because I the work itself was was coming in quite an intense way so handling prose kind of put me off reading prose just while it was being written that's not always the case I can still read fiction but I was writing I was sorry I was reading a lot of poetry partly because a friend of mine was really struggling in lockdown so I was trying to send her a poem a day just to as a kind of little you know talismanic thing for the day and it was great because it meant that I could go back through all these collections that I love my favorite poets and, and just pull out you know the best of kind of thing it was really nice and that in some ways I think helped me too and then when the drafting of this novel was done I turned back to fiction that in some ways doesn't console me but again gives me company so books that feel to me to be extraordinary and extraordinarily well written and dealing with extraordinary events so things like The Bintner's Luck by Elizabeth Knox you know a winemaker being visited by an angel once a year I mean it's outlandish shouldn't really work but it does it's extraordinary and it's brilliantly written so I reread that and I reread some James Salter and I was rereading poetry uh, just all the things that I knew to be very solid brilliant pieces of art that I could kind of lean on and think, oh yeah, okay, well, people did that and that's great. You know, if it all goes to shit and hell now, which you probably <laughs> will, at least we have these brilliant things here and I'll enjoy them. So that was, that was how I tackled it. So just as a mom, when you go down that rabbit hole of worry, because, you know, I do this quite often myself, when you worry about what would happen, like what would ha- what happens to my kids if something happens to me, what, how do you handle that? Like, what do you tell yourself? How do you get through those moments? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's tough, isn't it? I I used to try and think, because, again, I was brought up in a very rural environment. (laughs) I would always think, what would be happening if we were living in the wild, if we were animals? You know, by the age of six, could she, like, get into tins if she needed to because she opened a can and survived <laughs> I was like lying prostrate in the corner somewhere prostrate even in the corner somewhere 
So I used to try and think, okay, at what point are little human beings able to kind of pick berries and drink stream water and be okay? And that doesn't help. I mean, that doesn't really help, you know. I'm not sure. I think it's just living with the the knowledge that you love a being so much that were something awful to happen, it, it would be the end of you too. That's what I think. I mean, hopefully there are enough people around in a community of love that, you know, humans get looked after. I've just recently relocated to a very, very warm, beautiful, lovely town in the north of England. And my daughter and I have been very well looked after since we moved. And so that's nice to think, yeah, you know what? So many decent people, so much love. There will be reaching in and there will be taking care of. But it's almost, it's to me, it's almost inconceivable. I can't get my head around the idea of, of not looking after this little person I'm charged with looking after. It's It's... I don't know if there's any rational way out of that. And I think in some ways that's okay because those instincts are good. You know, they'll they'll really get you up off the floor. If you've both got norovirus, you know, you're going to have to get up and deal with it because, you know, you just do. And so you, I think I read it as positive as well. You know, I try and turn the kind of anxiety into something positive and think, yeah, that's what makes women really tough, especially just get up and do it and help each other. Love that. Okay, so just two last questions. Are you working on anything else now? And what advice would you have for aspiring authors? Ooh, yeah, I'm always generally thinking over something. And I have started a little book, not sure what it's going to be. I was working on a novel before Burnt Coat came along. I mean, Burnt Coat really just shoved the other book out of the way. I'm like, no, 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 my turn, you know. So I might go back to that. And I have been thinking about it, but I've also started something new. And I've always got short stories kind of hovering around, you know, ideas for them and and note making on them. What would I, you know, what would I advise to aspiring writers? Well, part of me wants to say read a lot and read a lot of good stuff. But then I also think in the end, I don't know how necessary that is. I've seen writers come through who are brilliant and not well read. I would consider that to be a perfectly legitimate road as well. I think sometimes people just have something in them and they can do it and they can communicate that way. So while it's helpful for learning about craft and technique, you know, especially with short stories, to read around, and I wouldn't say don't read, I would also say just have faith in the kind of voices of you and that you're being a conduit for and of. And I don't know, throw the rule book out. I don't, I've never really held to the notion that you know by page 10 something has to happen and you know I know there are writers that work very successfully that way but I I don't I don't see things that way at all I think being idiosyncratic is is good better in some ways than trying to follow anything else and be authentic I guess and being authentic doesn't mean just writing about you I really do believe that the imagination is it's it's not an organ but I often talk about it like an organ in the human body and it's the most powerful one you know, you might have a good heart for running marathons, but your imagination is something else completely. And the more you use it, the more I think it works and gets stronger. So just think of it that way. Think, you know, you've got your heart, you've got your liver, you've got lungs, you've got an imagination. That's all you need. I love that. That's <laughs> Thank you. Sarah, this has been so nice. I hope your daughter feels better. And thank you very much for taking the time today. And yeah, you're very special. I feel like you're from like another time. You know, like I, I mean, well, England is. We're going yeah. back to the 1950s with this, you know, this government. So yeah. 
<laughs> anyway. All right. Well, I'm so pleased our paths have crossed and wishing you all the best. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at moonpig.com. Moonpig.com.